I know of a, a restaurant that decided to move two and a half miles away. Well, when they moved two and a half miles away, they were open for one year more. And I, I used to go to that restaurant quite a bit. I asked, why are you guys closing down? And they said, well, honestly, we don't have any traffic anymore. But what happens whenever you have a business that's displaced and no one follows them? We're not talking about a Chili's, right? We're talking about a mom and pop independent owner operator. There's no compensation for that. And there should be. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Welcome to Season 5 of Infrastructure Junkies. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Short. Season five? How did that happen? Season five already. It's hard to Dang. believe that this idea, which came about during COVID, has been around for over four seasons. What's COVID? Right. Are we out of topics yet, Kristen? Not even close, bud. Okay, Bender. So to kick off season five, we thought we'd look inward, okay? No one wants to be in the path of a right-of-way project. It's stressful. It's costly. It's taxing. Sometimes it just feels like it's plain unfair. But I'll be the first one to say that we Americans are very, very fortunate with the systems we have in place. Centuries ago, across the pond, if the king wanted to take your goats, he'd just cut off your head, and then he'd take your goats. And here in the United States, we have the Fifth Amendment, which doesn't necessarily confer the right of eminent domain upon the government. No, no, the government already has that right, but instead it establishes certain restrictions if the government wants to exercise eminent domain. There are certain obligations conferred upon the government to protect its citizens from the negative impacts of right-of-way projects. For example, we have the Uniform Relocation Act. We have a requirement of a bona fide offer. We have regulations, we have laws, and we have case law to give us guidance. You get the idea here. But listen, despite these safeguards, it's still a very imperfect system. We can, and I would suggest to you, we have a moral obligation to try to always do better. From my perspective, we need to necessarily change the law, but we do need to improve our practices within the confines of the laws and regulations that we have. So Kristen and I thought this would be a great opportunity to have a very honest discussion about what might need improvement within our system and what we could do better. That's right. And as you know, I specialize in relocation assistance, and I think we have a fantastic system. Is it perfect? Is the process painless? Do we make the impacted property owners whole? No, no, and no. But it's good, and we can all benefit from a discussion about the imperfections and how we can improve within the system. So I invited my friend, Sage and Brooks, to have this discussion with us. Sajin and I have worked together on many cases uh, involving relocation, and I think he's just the guy. Shall I uh, properly introduce him? Please do. Sajin Brooks is an attorney who focuses on eminent domain litigation and real estate transactions involving entities with the power to condemn. He has practiced almost exclusively in the field of eminent domain and acquisitions for almost two decades and represents clients that vary from large corporate entities to individual landowners. Sajin joined the firm of Baron Adler, Clough, and Otto in 2014, but previously he served as an assistant attorney general at the Office of the Attorney General of Texas Transportation Division, where he managed litigation regarding the DFW Connector Highway Construction Project, which was a multi 
billion dollar project in the DFW Metroplex. Mr. Brooks was recently admitted to the Texas Bar College. He has been a member of the Oklahoma Bar Association since 2000 and the State Bar of Texas since 2005 and has been admitted to practice in the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Court of Appeals 10th Circuit, the U.S. District Court for the Northern, Eastern, and Western Districts of Oklahoma, and the Eastern District of Texas. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sajan Brooks! What an intro. Hi, Sajan. Hey, Sajan. Hello, how are you today? You are the recipient of the most enthusiastic bio-read and intro in the history of in infrastructure history. junkies. In the history of infrastructure junkies. I'm spent. Well, I, I am flattered. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for coming and Thank on. you for having me on your fifth season. Yeah, man. Thanks for kicking it off for us. Um, we put together an outline before we start every season, and we kind of brainstorm. And last season, we focused a lot on water. And we're never shy about questioning ourselves so we're going to move away from water and we're going to look inward and we're going to invite you as a landowner lawyer i like to give you guys a hard time because i don't represent any landowners but we're going to invite your perspectives onto the show to tell us what frustrates you what frustrates your clients and from your perspective what could we be doing better and sajan i think you have the great advantage over many people of having worked for the attorney general's office before you represented private entities. So this is a great opportunity for our listeners and for ourselves. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What do you think? You think the Uniform Act is just kind of perfect and everything's hunky-dory? It's a work in progress. Uh, <laughs> it's better than before the Uniform Act, obviously. As you know, it is the eminent statute that relates to eminent domain and condemnation matters. And anyone that has federal funds in their project is obliged to follow it. It definitely has some holes. It's incomplete. I think it's somewhat beneficial on the residential side. And I think there's a lot to be desired when it comes to commercial property relocations. Well, you gave us some actual really specific points of that you've seen in your practice things that maybe are imperfect or result in something that might be unfair to landowners and or displacees. kind of want to dive into some of those and see if you can tell us more about your experiences um, with these situations. And I, I think the first one that you gave us was the difference between the federal rule and the state rule for appraisals. And I think what you said is that under the federal rule, you could get nothing for a taking. First of all, tell us the difference between the federal rule and the state rule. And what are you talking about? Yes. Well, the federal rule, so whenever the federal government or uh, jurisdictions that follow what they call the federal rule do a taking, it's a before and after analysis. So what happens on the appraisal is there is a value for the part acquired, and then you look to any damages or benefits to the remainder. And if the appraiser or the condemning authority finds that the benefits outweigh the value of the actual acquisition, then if they offset, and that could, honestly, I mean, if you took it out to the nth degree, right, someone could end up paying the federal government for the privilege of having their property taken. However, the law stops at zero. It zeroes out. So let's say the government decides to build a wall, and they take part of your property to build a wall, but then the government turns around and finds that you are actually in a better position because you have a wall where you didn't have one before, that could zero out and the landowner would end up getting nothing. 
that's opposed to the summation rule, which is the state rule, when under the state rule, the part acquired is always valued and any benefits simply offset any damages. So that's kind of how those two would work hand in hand. In Texas, we follow the state rule. Most jurisdictions do follow the state rule. So the landowner is always going to be entitled to the value of the part being acquired. They may not agree with the value of the part acquired, but there's always going to be some sort of value put forth. And then the question is whether or not the remainder has any damages. And if the appraiser finds that a brand new road is coming through and now the property has more access than it had in the before situation, then those benefits could offset any claimed damages to the remainders vis-a-vis a bisection, if you will. Well, Sajin, we follow the state rule as well in Virginia, but let me play devil's advocate here, okay? So what? So what? If you're talking about dollars and cents, which is really what eminent domain is all about, if the project is making that landowner richer by virtue of benefits to the property, so what if you don't compensate them for what you've taken? Disclaimer, I am playing devil's advocate. <laughs> I thought you might want to repeat that. Right. Yeah, let's, let's well, clarify. You know, just, just for the sake of the discussion, my very first jury trial, uh, eminent domain jury trial from many years ago, we did that. We took a strip take off front, off the front of property that was zoned ag two. I think we valued it at three bucks a foot, the strip that we took. And the remainder was infinitely more valuable because then we brought curb and guttering. We brought sewer. We brought all kinds of utilities. We widened the road. There was better access. My gosh, we made that guy rich. So if we hadn't paid him the 15000 for taking some square footage off of that at three bucks a foot, so what? We made him rich. Well, that's an interesting perspective. And, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? <laughs> By adding curb and gutter, what you did is you did that to everyone else's property as well. So basically, that's a community enhancement. Everyone got the benefit of that. You didn't necessarily make that property that much better. And on top of it, what if they didn't want the curb and gutter? I mean, that's you know re- really where it comes down to. I, too, have tried a, an eminent domain case where a hotel was losing part of their rooms and the analysis was the hotel would be in better shape because it never sold out that many rooms in the first place. So, <laughs> I mean, I think when you look at something like that, you can't say, well, we helped you. Now you're hundred percent. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're, you're much more leaner now, right? So, I mean, I don't think that the landowner really appreciated that argument and I can see why, because they still lost something. Yeah. As a side note, this landowner, boy, he couldn't stand the government. He couldn't stand eminent domain. He took it very personally, even though it was a rental property. And then lo and behold, 15 years later, I clipped another piece of property that he had in an entirely different city. And so this guy, he wound up settling, but he said, I want to come into your office and I want to talk to Mr. Arnold one-on-one and tell him how he's ruined my life twice. (laughs) Uh, do you put that on your resume? No, no, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> take that meeting. I didn't take the meeting. Well, I mean, one thing about eminent domain is uh, I hope this person's life wasn't ruined. It is a taking, but it is a taking where under the Fifth Amendment, as you described, there is a requirement for just compensation. People can disagree with what is just compensation, but typically there is going to be compensation paid and hopefully no one's lives are ruined. No one goes to jail. No one's dead or firm because of this. It's just a, a necessary evil to get infrastructure projects off the ground. Yeah, but in fairness, it's just a crummy feeling 
to be in the crosshairs of any sort of a project. And as I said in our opening remarks, it really just does feel like dumb, really, really misfortune, dumb luck, whatever you want to call it. You know, it may not ruin your life, but it sure can give you a lot more gray hair. And we've inve- we have examined some instances where it did ruin people's lives. You know, when we've talked to Howard Mansfield and whatnot. Look up Romaine Tenney, why don't you? Yeah. Well, thanks for explaining that for our listeners and for us. I think that's fascinating. I, the idea of offsets, even with the state rule between damages and enhancements. And you're right. The Something being an enhancement is one person's opinion, right? That it's an enhancement. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the thing that I dislike about the benefit enhancement in particular is whenever you have a parcel, let's say it's 10 acres, the project comes through is taking two acres for the project. And then all of a sudden, because it's a smaller parcel in the after, it's found to be worth more money. I mean, so basically what you have is a paper enhancement. And you're saying, because we took this from you, now your property, instead of being worth $5 a foot, is worth $7 a foot. Oh, but only in the after and only after you've lost two acres. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me, you know, in all fairness. You lose two acres off out of 10. It really should probably, and it's worth, it's worth seven in the after, it probably should be worth seven in the four. And they shouldn't have that paper enhancement. And it's hard to explain to clients. I mean, most people never have to go through this. Most people aren't like the gentleman that David dealt with, had to go through it twice. And it is daunting without a doubt. I mean, there's a lot of weird nuances and it's very hard to explain to somebody that, you know, because they had 10 acres and now they have eight acres because someone's taking two acres from them, that their land's now worth more only in the after and trying to explain a paper enhancement. Right. Right. Well, I agree with you, of course, but sometimes I feel like I need to play devil's advocate. You're good at that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about another issue that you brought up. You said something about the larger parcel issues. For instance, the taking is off a parking lot used for a restaurant across the street. Should the restaurant be included as the larger parcel if it's in the same name? Tell us more about that situation. Right. Well, sure. You know, the idea of the larger parcel, basically there's a three-legged stool, if you will. And the three-legged stool, you've got to consider unity of use, whether or not the property is contiguous, and unity of ownership. Well, you know, if you have a property that is bisected by a street, and in this case, it's a restaurant, and the restaurant has parking on the other side of the street. Some appraisers may find that it's not the larger parcel. When I think it's fair, and it should, you know, and other appraisers would agree with me that the proper analysis would be to include the parking lot as part of the larger parcel, and thus you'd appraise the restaurant as well, because the parking lot is to the benefit of the parcel. And if they're in the same name and Obviously, I think you could argue unity of use as well because they're separated by a road and the taking is coming off the parking lot. I think you need to look at the impact to the restaurant as well in that scenario. Well, whose call is that? I've had situations like this. I know exactly what you're talking about, but whose call is that? It's the appraisers. Yeah. I mean, I can try to advocate for that. And of course, that would be how my client would want to see it as far as being the larger parcel, including both parcels. And ultimately, it would be up to the trier of fact, which would be either a judge or a jury, 
But at first blush, I believe it, it lies with the appraiser's opinion. So is this one of those holes in the Uniform Act? Like, is there something that says, hey, you have you better consider this? Or is this just hope we get a good appraiser on this one? I think it's really hope you get a good appraiser. I mean, yeah. appraisers have to follow USPAP. Right. And if they deem that it's not a, the larger parcel, then, I mean, I think that, that they're under that opinion and that opinion even though I may disagree with it, is what they're going to put forth. Well, this makes me think about, I think a lot of times when I think about how I can better do my job within the confines of the rules, it really all comes down to communication, communication between all parties early on, especially within relocation. I know that's not what we're talking about here, but if something like that is going on, the earlier the appraiser and the condemning authority, the agency, the everybody knows, hey, look, this restaurant, this is like all tied together. Conversations about that early on. Isn't that something that could help maybe pave the way to have it be a more fair situation for the owner? Absolutely. I mean, I think communication is key. You're right. I just hope that there's the, the situation exists where the appraiser understands and believes you or maybe put force why they don't believe you, but communication is key. You always want that. But you know, Sajin, eminent domain in Virginia is very, very divisive. You don't see people crossing the lines from landowner to condemning authority and vice versa very often. And so as a result of that, you tend to see the same appraisers on the same side. Generally, they're either agency appraisers or they're landowner appraisers, and you don't see many of those folks switching sides. And so... That breeds a lot of cynicism and skepticism, and you would see an agency appraiser saying, well, the larger parcel rule doesn't apply here. It's a unitary lands doctrine, what we call it, doesn't apply here. Or the landowner appraiser would say, well, of course it applies. And if that's the case, where you have one appraiser on one side saying it applies and the other side saying it doesn't, how do we solve that? Is it a jury question or where you're from? Can we file a motion in limine to have the court interpret the law? I think you could ask for a judicial decision, but ultimately it's going to come down to the trier of fact. I don't think the court is going to throw out one opinion on some sort of witness challenge or challenge to an expert as long as the opinion's sound. Yeah. And in that scenario, usually most in domain cases wind up from a jury because there are two different opinions as to what just compensation is and how you derived it. Right. Right. And I don't, I don't know what your experience is, but I know in my own personal legal practice, the court is very, very, very reluctant to toss a landowner's appraiser's opinion. I guess the thinking I, is they're already being involuntarily impacted and let the jury sort it out. Absolutely. I mean, that's what appellate cases are made on whenever an opinion went forth to the jury and then it was unsound. And the appellate court typically find you know, when something's unsounded, then bring the case back to the lower court. But most of the time, yes. I mean, you're, I think most courts in any situation are loath to strike an expert's opinion. Yeah. Okay. Here's another one. You brought up the potential problems when no income approach is used for properties renting to a business, outdoor advertising sign, or cell tower that are impacted. Tell me about this situation. Yes, uh, it happens from time to time where we have an appraisal that will come in and the subject is improved with either a cell tower or an outdoor advertising tower. And that advertising sign or cell tower 
has an income stream attached to it. Sure. And that income stream is either based on a lease or if the OAS or cell tower owns an easement, then that easement likewise needs to be valued just like it would if it had a ground lease on it. And you know, what happens sometimes is when we get these appraisals in, though the income approach is not applied. So what happens as myself, as an attorney for the landowner, then I have to go and talk to my appraisers and we do an income approach on that sign site or on that cell tower site and use market value data, apply a cap rate, and then we present that back to the condemning authority. But if the condemning authority doesn't have that in their appraisal, and then we're already arguing uphill. Because as much as I have my appraisers on my side that are representing the landowner, the condemning authority always has an appraiser as well, mm -hmm. right? And they paid for that opinion. They have no reason necessarily to at first blush to discount it, especially because I say so. That's probably makes them want to go more the other way. And Trigen, well, they're hired witness. Uh, so it, you know, it can make things very difficult because there's no doubt in my mind that when there's a cell tower or an outdoor advertising sign, it's paying rent to somebody or it has an easement and that easement should be valued at what other leases are valued up and down that same general area. And when that's not there and when that's not applied, when they don't, when an appraiser has not gone through the analysis, then it's an uphill push with the condemning authority saying, wait, you missed what could be something that's valued at hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's just not there because what's happened is that income stream was not compensated. When they aren't using the income approach, they're like, here's this monopole sign. It's, we're going to put a value of $40,000 on it. Like that's it. Just it's, here's how much this is worth. They'll value the pole, the pole right? Yeah. Or they'll value the tower. But then they don't look to see what is the value of either the lease, and that lease could be back to the landowner. Mm -hmm. Or if it's an easement, it would go back typically to the cell tower or the outdoor advertising right. company. Well, and you and I, I think, have done worked on projects and parcels where there were cell towers, and we know a cell tower, I think I've done a cell tower that had like 23 tenants on it uh, with different carriers that had equipment on that cell tower that were leasing it. So it's it's not so cut and dry as here's this metal structure. Right. And then fortunately, when we have that number of tenants, typically on a cell tower, we do have a mechanism in the state and Texas. And Texas looks at those tenants as utilities, right? Mm -hmm. And so they will get compensated to make their movement to a new tower via utility relocation agreement. The tower itself, it may be itemized as, you know, it's a steel tower. Here's what it costs in the market. The end game, though, is what is that little piece of dirt worth at the bottom? And who is that piece of dirt worth? What we need to look at is when we get down to the dirt where that tower sets, what is that lease interest or what is the value of that easement and how should that be compensated for? Because it's not the price of the dirt itself. It's a different valuation than that of the whole property and needs to be carved out and looked at different. If you just apply saying Farmer Brown's dirt is worth so much per square foot mm -hmm. to include that cell tower area, 
then you're missing a piece of compensation. Rather, it goes to the cell tower company because they own an easement. And then you look to the market and say, what are these tower sites leasing for in the market? You know, buy a number and then put a cap rate to it to get a value out of it. Or it should go back to, you know, in this case, the farmer who signed the lease and is getting so much per month because of having that tower. Okay. That makes perfect sense to me. But here's, so here's the question. Is this another one of those places where there's a hole in the regulations? I mean, is this all objective? whether you're going to use the income approach or not? Is there any, hey, if there's a sign or there's a cell tower, you is there something that is subjective and we just have to use our brains and communicate about it? Or is there is there is this a is this a hole in the in the rules? Again, I I don't want to say it's a hole in the rules, but I think it is an error on the appraisal itself when it's not done. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a client recently that has a piece of property. It's functioning as a tow storage facility. And that tow storage facility wasn't valued under the income approach. They just did a whole value on the price of dirt. Well, clearly there's a business on that property and that business is making money. And while we don't pay for business losses, we do value the real estate. And if the highest and best use of that real estate is for a storage towing and storage facility, then we should look at what is the value that is generated by leasing that land to hold cars. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit about one of my favorite topics, relocation. I want to talk with you. I know you've had a lot of clients that were displaced residential owners and tenants. So let's talk about housing supplements and the issue with housing supplements for residential occupants and condemnation. What do you see that arises that's a problem or that may even seem unfair for, let's talk about residential occupants? Yeah, I think when it comes to residential displacee, the rules are, they try to help the landowner, obviously, but they don't always look to every mechanism which could benefit the landowner the most while it tries the best it can. For instance, if you have a, a residential property and this facing displacement, then as you know, the idea is to go and basically look in the market, usually get some comps of properties that are currently for sale, and then figure out what would be a decent housing supplement. And how that works though, is that is offset by anything that's given up in the condemnation, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say a home is valued at $100,000 in the condemnation. And the landowner may or may not think it's worth $100,000. Let's say they think it's, in one scenario, let's start with $120,000. Well, if the housing supplement is worth $300,000, then the landowner, if they get $120,000 in the condemnation, then they won't get $300,000 in the relocation assistance. Matter of fact, they offset each other. So the landowner would only get, in this case, $180,000 as a housing Uh supplement because they put more money into the condemnation. Now, the problem with that is if they fight and say that their land is worth or their home is worth that $120,000, they pay taxes on $120,000. There is a tax hit that goes to the landowner in a condemnation. It just depends on whether or not it's long-term or short-term. But if they don't argue for the value 
of their house and say, okay, it's only $100,000, then they would get $200,000 as long as they move, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the key. They're forced to move, but they will get a tax break by not arguing that it's more. And so when you get that offset, it's really interesting because for every dollar you put into the condemnation pot, you take a dollar out of the reload pot. So it's hard for the landowner to want to argue for more money when they know their house is worth more, but then there's that edge on it. But the painful scenario comes when there's an issue such as a lien or something like that. If there's a lien on the property and same $100,000 scenario, the lien is, let's pretend it's $20,000 in this case. The landowner does not fight for the value and says, okay, I'll take the $100,000. $20,000 goes to the lien holder to satisfy the lien. Mm-hmm. The landowner now, when they go to buy that house, instead of getting $300,000, they get the same $200,000. They get to put in their eighty. They're deficient by $20,000. Mm-hmm. That happens quite often. Go ahead. But they had the lien satisfied, which they had to pay back anyway. Okay. So that, that your first point gave me heartburn. That well, point doesn't give me okay. heartburn. But Kristen's about to come uh, out of her chair. I'm so gonna. Li- I'm gonna. I'll stand. Okay. There. Listen. Remember when Dave played devil's advocate? I'm gonna play relo agent. Okay. So what? <laughs> so the freak what man? So you your house is worth a hundred thousand, and we found a comparable for three hundred thousand. The entire purpose of the replacement housing payment is to make sure that you can move into something as good or better in terms of size, age, condition, quality, functionality. I'm going to assume this is quite a step up for this particular owner-occupant, and we're giving them the money to do that. So what? I'm not talking about the lean situation. I've had that, and that has been, that's been a difficult thing at times in my career. But I'll tell you, I'm going to be real honest with you, Sajun. When I have landowners who are owner-occupants, and we come through the door and we say, oh, look, we found this comparable. You are eligible for this massive replacement housing payment if you purchase and occupy something that costs this much or more. Of course, if your money goes up in the uh, condemnation process, it's going to offset because the entire purpose of that is to make ensure that you can afford to live in something as good or better. Um, When those people are represented by attorneys for the condemnation, not you, Sajin, I'm not talking about you, but sometimes that feels icky to me. I have had situations where their attorneys want to fight for more money in that bucket. And then they are ending up paying some of that money to the attorney out of that bucket, which puts them in a similar situation to having a lien because they're not really getting all of that money. So if you need $300,000 to buy this house, in my opinion, who cares? which bucket it falls into. And I know capital gains tax, but if they're buying something, there's ways around that too. So that's my question as devil's advocate slash reload agent. Who cares? Well, there's a few things that I think that need to be looked at when it comes down to answering that question. For one, I mean, I understand that it's better to take the 300,000 house and put as much money in the relocation bucket as possible when it's a residence. And that's all fair and well. And if we're dealing with a situation where someone has to move, the project is taking out their house, that's also important. But when it comes down to, yes, you gave these people a gift, you know, (laughs) as you saw, as you see it, an upgrade, they got upgraded to a $300,000 house. 
who's going to be there when the tax bill comes? Because Texas is a property tax state. And the difference of you're 3Xing someone's property values right there. Mm -hmm. And if they're living on a some sort of subsidized income or limited income, are they going to be able to afford the property taxes the next year? Are you forcing them in a situation where because they've now moved and taken on a $300,000 house, which again, may put them in a good situation where they're going to be forced to move next year because they can't afford that house. This, you have made a great point and you and I are in alignment on this 100% because I will tell you, we are tasked with finding comparables that are within the financial means of our displaced people. And a lot of times I think people get lazy. I don't, I've seen it where it's like, well, oh, look, we're giving them a rental supplement or we're giving them a replacement housing payment so they can afford it. Hold on. What if there's $800 a month HOA fees, which we can't pay for? What if there's $200 a month maintenance fee, which we can't pay for? What if there's increased taxes? What if their insurance goes up? We can't pay for those things. And so it is our responsibility. And maybe this is another one of those times where we as agents in the right-of-way field, in order to do a, a better job within the confines of the law, we need to look harder at that. Within the financial means, just it doesn't mean, oh, I can pay the lease or I can close to purchase the house. There's much more to it. And I think that we are tasked with considering that when we're finding comparables for our displaced residents. Absolutely. To me, this just goes back to the premise of the entire episode, which is it's a very imperfect system. And we could probably continue this discussion for many, many, many hours over many weeks identifying issues like that. We're frankly, Sajin, we're just not going to see eye to eye on this. And I guess we take the easy way out when something is unfair to the landowner. We're like, well, it's not a perfect system. And then, <laughs> and then you're, you're looking at it from their perspective, like, yeah, but we didn't ask for this. Fix it. Fix it. Yep. You know? This episode of Infrastructure Junkies is generously sponsored by Blackbird Right-of-Way. If you are looking for compliant, timely, and innovative relocation solutions, this is exactly what Blackbird does. Kristen Short and her team deliver every parcel, every time. Find them at blackbirdrow.com, blackbirdrow.com. If you don't mind, let's segue into another topic, which is one of my personal favorites. I gave a presentation at ALICLE, I don't know, back in 17 or 18 or whenever. It was a relocation discussion. And all I said was the Uniform Act does not intend to make commercial displacees whole. And they literally booed me off the stage and told me that wasn't true. That's not what the Uniform Act was about. But since then, we've litigated this a number of times. And it's true. The Uniform Act doesn't. There is no intent. There is no mechanism to make a commercial displacee whole. Which side of that would you take? Would you take the position that, A, the Act does intend to make it whole and you have to do it? B, you should do it, or C, too bad, so sad, displacee, you're just not going to be made whole, even though you're the victim. Here. And D, would you have booed Dave off the stage? <laughs> D is easy. I would not have booed of Dave off the stage. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's interesting. I think that the act should make a displacee whole. But when it comes to a business, I don't necessarily always believe that it does make the displacement. Absolutely doesn't. Never. I, I agree with. I it say doesn't. never. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and one of the main reasons is I know state to state, check your state rules, but state to state, it varies. But the federal rules are, let's talk about reestablishment. There's a limit of $25,000 for reestablishment. That I've used that entire amount up relocating a snow cone stand, literally. That $25,000 does not go very far. And that's across the board, whether you're a snow cone stand or a multi-million dollar cement batch plant, that's it, $25,000. That's a drop in the bucket. And I think you and I align on this perfectly. That is not enough money. It's never been enough money. They could double, triple, quadruple it. And it in some cases, wouldn't be enough money. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think that in every circumstance, it would ever compensate for some of the losses that a business has when it's trying to reestablish itself. Now, maybe the snow cone stand can get it done for $25,000, I hope. But in the most part, no, when you're talking about multi-million dollar batch plants or any type of big manufacturing operation, $25,000 just doesn't get it done. It doesn't. Well, and I want to come back to that in a minute. But first, I think it's time we play a little game. Okay, we do a little game here on Infrastructure Junkies called Over Under Push. Are you familiar? It's Over, real, real it's hard. It's really complicated. It's, yeah. like, it's like cap rate math and stuff, you know? No, okay, Over Under Push. I'm going to give you three things, and for each one, you have to tell us whether it's overrated, underrated, or eh, it's a push. It's just aptly rated, okay? And we can discuss. And then here's the fun part is at the end, um, I get to tell you whether your opinions were correct or not. So that's how you win, is if I deem your opinions correct. Do you like this? This seems fair and fun, doesn't it? It's completely arbitrary. Guys, if, you, if the listeners could see, he looks so excited right now, guys. You don't even know. Okay, so here's your three things. Overrated, underrated, or it's a push. Number one, concerts. Number two, novels. And number three, movies. You may consider it for a moment. And when you're ready, we're going to talk about concerts. Overrated, underrated, or it's a push. Push. It's a push? Okay. It's a push. Wrong. Uh, underrated, <laughs> uh, depending on who you go see. What's, what's the favorite, your favorite concert you've ever seen? My favorite concert I've ever seen is The Killers. And oh. that was very, very, very underrated. I can't explain how great that concert was. Yeah. But I've also seen some that I left not overly happy with. That's why I kind of averaged the push. Okay, you know what? I take it back. You're right. Because I, guys, if you ever get the chance to see Bush live, do not. It's I, the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life. They're supposed to go back on tour this summer. They Bush should really, is. they should stop. They should, you know, there's a lot going on in our industry. They should try to get jobs in right away. <laughs> okay. Fit right in. Wait, what's the worst concert you've ever seen? Good question. Oh, there have been a lot of really bad concerts, but I would probably have to think Bob Dylan. I've heard he's really bad live. Yeah, well, he just stood there. He's yeah. he's bad not live. I don't. I think I think Bob Dylan's in my blind spot. Like I don't understand it. And I have younger people say the exact same thing about you too. They're like they suck. And I'm like no no no. You weren't there when no, they you were suck. in the mid to early to mid '80s. They were groundbreaking. Yeah. But I could yeah I could see how you'd come out at that point on Bob Dylan. I've heard that. Okay, let's go to novels. Over under push. Over. Over. Overrated. Okay. Please explain. Because I b believe movies are underrated. Oh, okay. So I had to go one okay. way. <laughs> okay. So novels, overrated, movies, underrated. Okay. That's well, fair. That's that's interesting. Is this like a long standing belief of yours or is it more recent? Because I think movies have gotten a lot worse lately and I don't know. I just, I've always been a movie fan and yeah. uh, 
I think there are some really, really cool movies out there. I mean, obviously, it's like with anything, is every movie great? No, there are some movies you probably felt like you wasted time that you'll never get back in your life. Uh, <laughs> Same but, with some books. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, but, you know, for the most part, there's some really, I mean, you may not be a Marvel fan, but you've got to kind of appreciate the special effects and Oh boy. The pulling of the cast. <laughs> oh We're not Marvel fans, oh but I think we are definitely in the minority in the entire world right now. There's a whole like universe and all the, I don't even know, but yeah. It gets to be a lot. Yeah. Yes. It seems that movie quality has gone downhill. All it is, Sage, and is Marvel movies anymore. They just don't make it. They don't make like fried green tomatoes or, or like something Goodwill like hunting. that. Yeah. It's just Marvel yeah. movies and stuff that I don't understand. And there's a lot of stuff out there in movies that I don't understand nowadays. Wicked is coming out. What oh, is? Wicked is coming out. Wicked, the musical. Yep. I mean, that should be writing Kristen's wheelhouse. Isn't that just the Wizard of Oz with songs? I'm going to mute you. You go ahead. I'm muting you. <laughs> Listen, I took my kids to see Wicked in New York last year. I've seen it before. My, my kids seen it the first time. It was the most magical thing ever. And when they showed that commercial during the Super Bowl, the trailer... For Wicked, I had goosebumps. I almost cried. Yes, that's in my wheelhouse, and I will be there opening day. By the way, that will be Thanksgiving of 2024, and you're going with us. Don't worry. It's going to be a good time. Yeah, very excited about Wicked. And you know what? Okay, for over-under push, I usually tell you you're one for three or three for three or whatever. I don't know that I can, like, judge you as harshly on this because I disagree with you on novels and movies, but I think you're right on concerts. So I'm going to give you a B-. minus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, so let, let, wait a bit. let's recount what's happened here. Sajin comes on, very graciously donates his time. I come out the gate, Adam. Then you come out the gate, Adam. And then you just told him he's a B minus. I'm on I over under push. He knew what he's he was getting into. Back. He knew what he was getting into. I don't, did you know what you were getting into, Sajin? Absolutely. <laughs> hey, C's get degrees. B minus is like pretty good. B minus is you probably become rich. That's right. Okay, Sajin, thank you for playing my game you did a great job okay do we have anything any other legal stuff or right-of-way stuff we want to talk about always we were talking about commercial displacies i do have a question for you and i'm totally putting you on the spot so feel free to tell me that you don't want to answer this question but let's say that you are in charge of a change to the regulations for commercial businesses what do you think should be compensable that is currently not Besides more, I know you want more reestablishment. So do I. Wow. There, there's several different things, but you said one. I think that there needs to be a mechanism, at least in Texas, to value goodwill or blue sky. I understand it's hard to value, but I think there should be a mechanism for that. Under the Texas law, you know, we just talk about the fact that what is compensable is the value of the real estate, but there's more to it than that. I know of a, a restaurant, for instance, here in Austin that was not impacted by any domain, but they, on their own volition, decided to move two and a half miles away. Well, when they moved two and a half miles away, they were open for one year more. And I, I used to go to that restaurant quite a bit. I asked, why are you guys closing down? And they said, well, honestly, we don't have any traffic anymore. We had no idea that moving two and a half miles would have changed the whole dynamic and the whole demographic of our customer base. And we did it to ourselves. We thought mm. we were getting a better lease rate, but we ended up shooting ourselves in the foot. And that was on them. But what happens whenever you have a business that's displaced 
and they have to change neighborhoods and no one follows them. You know? I think that situation is terribly unfair. It's terribly unfair. I understand that you're saying it should be something should be compensable within that goodwill. Where, how would you even, I don't know anything about how to come up with a number for that. You know, in Virginia, we have a crazy experiment where we'll compensate for lost profits. Oh my, <laughs> so, oh my. And we still haven't figured out how to do that. <laughs> so I don't know how we would ever, and that's been years since they passed that law. And so I don't know how you'd even, I don't know where you'd even begin on the goodwill discussion. It's so difficult to value normally. But I think, can we, you, Dave, you would even agree that's unfair, right? That a business has to move. That's a mom and pop shop. That's a neighborhood restaurant. I mean, in that situation. Yeah. It goes back to, it's an imperfect system and there's just going to be casualties of this imperfect system, but thank God for the fifth amendment. I don't know what else to say. I, I, I don't yeah. know what else to say. There's a lot that's not fair. Yeah. Sajin, and tell me if you're not comfortable discussing this, totally okay with me. But to me, one of the elephants in the room, whenever we deal with either eminent domain or the Uniform Relocation Act is attorney's fees. We get paid by the agency and we get paid by the hour. And usually landowner attorneys have a very cynical approach and say, well, you're getting paid by the hour. You're just churning the file. And my approach back to them is you're not getting paid by the hour. You're getting paid 40%. So you want to do as little work as possible. But the fact of the matter <laughs> is, how is the landowner ever made whole if they've got to pay their attorney out of their just compensation and there's no provision in the Relocation Act? I don't think you can charge a percentage in the Relocation Act for relocation benefits. Any comments you have on any of that? I think the, in the state of Texas, where each side pays their own attorney's fees, then the landowner is never going to be made whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, under your rather, rather it's a contingency fee agreement, or rather they're paying hourly. If the landowner is paying for something, and that's coming ultimately out of their compensation award, no matter how you cut it, they're never made whole, and that's just the fact of the matter. And it's not just attorneys. I mean, landowners in Texas have to pay for their own appraisers yeah. and their own expert witnesses. Yep. Yep. You know, I believe California allows some money for the landowner to get an appraisal. And that's just part of their package. And I know every state has their different rules regarding that, but when it's each side pays their own and there's no mechanism for attorney's fees or expert fees or costs, right. then yes, someone's not going to be made whole. Do you think that when a eminent domain case goes to trial, do you think the jury takes that into account? Like years ago when I was doing some personal injury work, the rule of thumb was the jury's going to take the medical bills and multiply it by some factor, whether it's two, three, four, or if they're really pissed off five or six, but they know that the attorney's got to take her cut or his cut. Do you think in eminent domain cases, the jury takes any of these attorney's fees or expenses into account when rendering just compensation? What a jury does is always hard to figure out because they're not supposed to. I mean, that's not supposed to be something that's factored in, just like they're not supposed to factor in the fact that their tax dollars are being used for the project and that their tax dollars are going to pay this landowner what they think right. is just compensation. But do they? It's hard to say. I think we've all wanted to be a fly on the wall inside mm -hmm. of a jury deliberation room. Yeah. Yeah, I, my sense, particularly in eminent domain cases, is that the jury will bring its common sense 
And if either side's theory doesn't make sense, that violates the basic terms of common sense, they'll reject it. And that's number one. And number two, heaven help the side that pisses off the jury. And there's <laughs> numerous ways to do that. And I've seen landowner side do it, and I've seen my side do it. And to me, when I'm mentoring younger lawyers, those are the things I'm telling them about eminent domain cases. But I, I'm like, you, I don't know if a jury even considers the attorney's fee provision or the cost of all these experts who come in for a couple of days of testimony. Well, and isn't it human nature to kind of think about even subconsciously, like how, the fairness of all of it and like, well, they are paying all these. I mean, I, I think it's human nature to let that sneak in, especially if you're not, yeah. you're not part of this industry and you don't understand the process. Well, I'm, I'm sure part of the industry in. and I'm not sure I understand the process. That makes two of us. <laughs> well, Sage, and this has been a delight. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us and to give us your perspective. I'm sorry if we were too rough. Oh, I'm sorry if Kristen was too rough. Are on we you. still friends? Absolutely. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> and I appreciate you having me. So thanks for coming on and we'd love to have you back sometime. Please, anytime. <laughs>